Okay. Wow. You know what? When, when was the last time we talked? What? When was that episode? I can't even remember, man. You know, since I retired, Josh, I think I've done uh, closing in on 150 podcasts. And uh, so it's, you know, I could I could go back on the calendar, you know, and find it and everything, but it's been a little while. All right. So let's see. I'm going to go to my videos here because I was curious when that was. And I was going to tell you of the topics that we hit on last time. And I did some research on that because I was trying to, to come up with some different topics from your book this time. Okay, so if I go to full episodes, let's see. So our talk was basically a year ago, right around a year ago oh, okay. from today. Yeah, yeah. So it's basically been a year. <clears throat> yeah. And the first thing I wanted to tell you was thank you. Oh, okay. okay. And I want to tell you thank you because you and uh, a counterpart of yours, um, Master Gun Scott Stalker. Yeah. You two were kind of the first, I'd say, more well-known people that gave me a chance. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, I, I was still relatively new. I was still trying to figure this out. And, you know, I was just talking to my buddies. And then suddenly I'm talking to the SEAC and, you know, yeah. the guy who runs Space Command. I'm like, what the heck? But I, I just think y'all are amazing for giving me that opportunity. It definitely helped, um, you know, get me out there more. And, you know, flash forward to now, I got the... I know the 2022 it, podcast award there. Uh, yeah. and, I, and I do it for AFSA now. And it's all thanks to, you know, people like you who gave me that, that shot early on. So I definitely want to start by just telling you, thank you for that. Hey, I'm proud of you, brother. It, your hard work is paying off with this man. And, you know, as a senior leader, I think the best thing that you can do is that when a fellow leader like you has an endeavor like this, is you ask, how can I support, you know, and, and it's not what's in it for me or anything. It's how can I support you to reach your goals? And, you know, your hard work is uh, indicative of everything you put into this by that award you got on the wall, man. So. No, I appreciate that. I've, and I've always been that guy that was just average at everything, you know, and I was okay with that. Like I was doing my best. <laughs> yeah, but I was never like killing it at one particular thing, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so to find like this, what I'm passionate about and that other people enjoy it, like it's kind of made me realize, you know, when your purpose aligns like with your work and you can combine those things, like that's when like miracles start happening for you, you know? Absolutely. Bingo, man. And let me tell you, you were born to be the SEAC. I mean, my God, like you are a straight up, you are the thing that movies are based on. I wouldn't be surprised if there's movies based on you and they just didn't tell you. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, um, we'll see what the future holds. Um, but, uh, um, you know, I just, everything I've done in life has been a, a lesson learned. Um, and then from a lesson learned, it has gone to setting a goal. And so, um, and continuing to do that throughout my life and throughout my career, I think is what got me to where I, I you know, I, I came to, you know, in the book, I talk about my one night in jail and uh, laying on that wooden slab, trying to sleep in this beacon of light that was just shining down on me that wouldn't allow me to sleep. And I think it was something higher, uh, not necessarily spiritual. I mean, 
uh, it certainly could have been, but it was something in that light that was telling me, look at yourself. This is not, you know, what you are on this earth to do. You, you have so much more that you can do in life. And, and the minute, you know, I got out of that situation, I said, I'm going to make something with my life, you know, and, and then when professional goals and family goals and everything start aligning, um, and, you know, and you have this momentum going, uh, good things happen to you, you know, regardless of whether you're in the military or in life or in business, good things happen to you. When you get that alignment right and the focus right, good things happen. Absolutely. And, uh, and, and that happened to you. But I'll yeah. also say, you know, I always heard the term courageous leadership. I said this on a few episodes, but it's just so true. Like, you could be a cowardly leader, right? You could sit back and just let the cards fall as they may and just be be out of it. And there's no risk, you know, for you as a yeah. leader in that. But if you actually try and you actually hold people accountable and to the standards and to the vision that you know is right, you're putting yourself at risk to be scrutinized and criticized and called out as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, any leader worth his salt is prepared to take any criticism that they may get because of a method that they are using to try to have a positive outcome or a positive deviance to what you're trying to accomplish either either individually or organizationally. And for me throughout my career, I didn't allow that fluff to stop me from doing what I knew was right, you know? And I say all the time, you know, if you combine accountability with empathy and clarity, you're going to have a pretty good leader, but you're also going to have a pretty cohesive organization. And so that's what I tried to be through my whole career was that leader that, look, um, I'm going to be all about, you know, enforcing distant, uh, discipline and instilling uh, or enforcing standards and instilling discipline, but also one that understands that I'm dealing with people, I'm dealing with human beings that I want them to be excited about coming to work. I don't want them to come to work because they have to. I want them to come to work because they want to, and they want to be a part of this organization. And that's where I talk about, you know, in the leadership chapter about leader presence. And what happens when you show up as a leader? What reaction do you get from the men and women that are in your span of control? Do they get excited? Do they get excited, but also do they start checking themselves out to make sure that you know, they're not half-stepping because they know that you're the kind of leader that's going to hold them accountable. And so um, that's what I was always tried to be, you know. And I remember a time when I was in the 82nd Airborne Division, and I was just a jumper on a jump. And uh, uh, the jump master on that jump had a medical incident. It wasn't anything, you know, uh, severe or anything, but all of a sudden they could not perform duties as a jump master. And uh, they had to, you know, the guy got taken away by the medics and everything. He was okay and everything. But they came down the line, you know, to the jumpers that, and they said, hey, Sergeant Troxel, hey, we need a primary jump master now, or we need a jump master uh, because that this guy is out. And I said, all right, I'm in. I got it, you know? And so I got up and the first thing I did is went down to the line to all these other jumpers and said, all right, you're going to take your full second in the door. We're going to have a great time. It's going to be a great jump. The winds are, are died down. It's beautiful weather out here. It's going to be a great jump. Even though it was a midnight jump, 
seven C-141 aircraft. You know, there's going to be 700 jumpers in the air. <laughs> Potentially, you know, one of the most high risk kind of airborne operations we do. But I wanted to make sure that as a leader, now just thrust into this position, that I was bringing a set of calm to the people that I was going to be responsible for. And I think as a leader, you know, I talk about the one minute energizer in the book. And if you got 60 seconds to say something that can influence people, then it's got to be something that will reach their heart, their soul, and, and get them charged up and ready to go and do anything, whether that's, you know, run through a wall or, or go after a numerically superior enemy force or something like that. I think that's what being a leader is all about. And that's what I've always tried to be throughout my life and throughout my career. And even now in what I'm doing post-military is try to be that example so that others will reach their untapped potential. And you are that example. You lead by example. That's part of, you know, what makes you special. Part of what I see in the book, you're always, you're always the first to dive in. Like you always just, just go and show them what, you know, leading looks like. And, you know, <clears throat> that's that's hard to do because you know you do stumble you do fall you do but you got you got to learn from that um and and you're you're very teachable you know you always find a mentor you always appreciate what people would bring to the team you'd leverage those talents so i think you were a very gifted special person you know that we had on our side 100% after reading your book i have no doubts that you were just an absolute game changer you know for our force well i appreciate it josh you know, I think the key to being a great leader is, uh, do you get excited more about what your subordinates do to reach their potential, or do you get more excited about what you do? And for me, every time I saw one of the people that were working for me or that were in my span of control do something or reach something that they didn't think they had the ability to do and, and see them just, you know, beaming in the uh, in their success and everything. That meant more to me as a leader than anything. That meant that I helped somebody else. And when I retired, you know, here I am 38 years in the military. I'm in Conmey Hall there at Joint Base Meyer Henderson Hall. You got thousands of people in the audience. You got the incoming and outgoing chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the Secretary of Defense, all these folks are there. And in my retirement speech, I said, I, you know, you can't, we can't, uh, determine what our legacy will be. That's for others to figure out. I said, but if, I, if I'm remembered, I just hope that I'm remembered as a good teammate and that uh, people knew that they could count on John Wayne Troxel when the chips were down or if they needed help with something, they knew that they could reach out and that I would answer the phone. And I think as a leader, um, that's the best thing you can be is be there for the people that you're responsible for and help them with any challenges they may have. Absolutely. That's amazing. Thank you for sharing that. And by the way, the book, here it is, y'all. <laughs> look at this book. I love that picture too, by the way. That was one of the pictures I used for like when I was promoting our first conversation. Yeah. I just love that picture. Um, and so I thought that was really cool that you used it, but it's called Surrender or Die, Reflections of a Combat Leader, John Wayne Troxel, SEAC Retired, Creator of eTool Nation, and PME hard. So this, this pretty much embodies what you're all about. Right. And it, and it's yeah. in, and I've never done this before where I read parts of the book and then ask you a question. I've never done it that way before, but yeah. I thought it'd be kind of cool to do that now if you were cool with it. 
Hey, brother, I'm I'm here. You're my squad leader right now. So you tell me what to do, man. <laughs> Dang, I'm, I just got promoted. OK, um, um, but before we get into the book and the questions that I had about the book. Yeah, um, there is the hero's gauntlet. It's three questions that I've tailored for you at the beginning, and I do it every episode sure. or try to. And so we're going to start with one. I don't think I asked you this last time, but I, I definitely want to ask this time. I feel like you were very close to being a WWF superstar. I, th I think, I think there's two paths: Siak and and freaking giving pile drivers. You know, yeah. <laughs> if you took that path and you became that that world champion wrestler in the, what's now the WWE, what would your wrestling name be? Oh, um, I, I think it would be, uh, you know, I, you know, it's it's hard because you know, being a career military guy, but, you know, when I did the WWE tribute to the troops and, you know, Vince McMahon had me come out and fire the troops up at the Verizon center in DC with 12,000 people in the stands, they gave me the intro music of Sergeant Slaughter when I came out. No, for yeah, real? Oh yeah. And you can go on YouTube and you can see this video. And they told me, Hey, just get in the ring and fire people up. And so, uh, you know, I got in the ring and I just started talking about um, wrestlers and everything, you know, um, and finishing moves. And I tried to, you know, do some, uh, you know, analogies that were similar to combat and everything with finishing moves and everything. So, uh, I, you know, it'd be hard for me. <clears throat> but being John Wayne, you know, I think, uh, you know, the Duke, you know, just the Duke, coming yeah. out, you know, and. Uh, and everything I think would uh that's probably what my WWF name would have been. The Duke, John Wayne. I love that. No, and that's I think perfect. my finishing move would have been the Lariat. You know, What's now that? Stan Hansen, you know, a guy that was a wrestler in the 70s that I followed, his clothesline move was called a Lariat. So I would probably, you know, plagiarize his Lariat, and that would have been my finishing move as well. I think another good finishing move is like if your tag team partner like threw in an e-tool and you started beating yeah. everyone over the head with it. Well, that would be a good one. You know, if I had a manager like Bobby the Brain or somebody throw me an e-tool in, yeah, that would have been good. Like when the refs are distracted, you know, and the people start like cheating. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It'd absolutely. be like that. That'd be awesome. <laughs> um, okay, so I think I can share my screen with you. Let's give this a shot here. So I'm going to click desktop. Let me know if you can see my screen right now um i can oh yeah there you go can you hear it yeah i got it there it is right there look at that childhood dream come true <laughs> yeah look how freaking epic this is and you know you talk about being a leader and being a people person josh when i came out i wanted to make sure that i could connect with the audience you know and uh so that's why I started clapping hands. And the gentleman there in the red shirt, we gave each other a bear hug and everything. Now, what I was worried about here was not splitting my pants. You know, I saw that hesitation for a minute. <laughs> Thank you all so much for being here tonight and celebrating the 14th WWE Tribute to the Troops. And this is phenomenal how the WWE in the, the military WWE, has along with its partnership with the USO, who, by the way, is celebrating its 75th 
anniversary of supporting the military made this all possible. And on behalf of the more than 2 million active guard reserve military members, as well as our veterans and wounded warriors, it's my honor to be here representing all of them tonight. That had to be a dream come true right there. It was. And you know, I was just going on a straight adrenaline now I want to there. See what kind of energy we have. In you were on adrenaline right there? Oh, yeah, because they just said, go in and fire them up. I didn't have a script. And uh, I just said, all right, I'm going to go in and, and let it fly. It looks like people watched a lot right here. Let's see what that is. So where is the army at tonight? <laughs> this is awesome. Yeah. And somewhere in there, you All get right. a USA chief. Navy, where are you at? Oh, this is awesome. They're all there. This is crazy. Let's see what the Air Force. I, I never. Let's see what your 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 Air your Force. service. There they are. There they are. <laughs> <laughs> they were late. They were running to yeah, their seats. <laughs> I mean, Marines are pretty hardcore dudes, I got to say. Yeah. <laughs> and the Coast Guard. And if this happened today, you'd say in the Space Force. Yeah, and the Space Force would be so in there, too. Thank you, know? you all for yep. being here tonight. I want to send out a couple of quick thank yous. First and foremost, to the chairman of WWE, Mr. Vince McMahon and the entire WWE crew, thank you so much for putting on this event. Did you get to talk to Vince McMahon? Yeah. So how, uh, how is he? He's actually a, a, a pretty good guy. Now you can, I could tell, you know, my wife Sandra was with me and my team uh, was with me, you know, from the office of the SEAC and we met backstage with them. And, uh, you know, we actually went into the VIP lounge and we had a beer with Ricky, Ricky, the dragon steamboat and Sergeant Slaughter and, and some of the other, you know, Bob Backlund was there and others, but we actually went in and, uh, uh, Vince McMahon met with me and, and Sandra and everything. And he awarded me a title belt. As a matter of fact, no title belt here. Oh my gosh. That's wild. That yeah. is wild. So, uh, as a matter of fact, I'll just put it on my shoulder here, like I'm, like I'm, I'm the Duke, you know, ready to That's... go in and put the lariat on somebody. But uh, knock him down with that lariat clothesline. Yeah, but uh, <laughs> he was, he is a. I could tell though, as a businessman, he's a relentless taskmaster, and he is about having a near perfect product, which is why he's been so successful. And I think, you know, when it comes to leaders. When you're striving for excellence and you're trying to get perfection, but you're in that 80 to 90% range, um, then you want to continue to strive for that. There are those that, you know, basically want people to meet minimum standards and not have this positive deviance to everything we do. And minimum standards are that close to failure. And I, McMahon is one of those guys. So I, I could tell he's probably you know, a guy that ain't afraid to chew people's butts and everything. He's had some, you know, some stuff he had to go through and, you know, for lack of a better term, some scandals. And I think he's still got some stuff going on, but I will tell you, he was a true gentleman when he met with Sandra and I, and uh, his appreciation for the military 
is uh, just robust. And uh, that's cool. You know, so every one of those troops you saw in there that night, mm-hmm. they got in there for free. Oh, wow. Yeah. Talk, no wonder uh, they were all fired up. They're in there for yeah. free. They're yeah, representing they, they the got military. in there for free. You know, and, and as you know, those those WWE tickets aren't cheap at all. And so right. you know, he comped every military and veteran that came in there. Wow. I had an airman at Luke Air Force Base that when the WWE came, she's like, hey, I heard this rumor where like, if I show up in uniform, they'll just let me in and walk me to the front. And I was like, yeah, you for real? You think that'll happen? She's like, that's what I thought. That's what I heard. That night she sent me a picture with like selfies with like all the wrestlers, because as soon as she stepped in there, they brought her right to the stage. I was yeah. like, wow, that is a thing. <laughs> and you know what was so um what I always try to do as the SEAC is that when these organizations, especially a major organization like the WWE that is so popular and influential in the military, when they put on events like this, I tried to reciprocate in terms of getting them out with troops. So the day before that event, I actually took uh, half a dozen of the WWE superstars. I took them to Coast Guard Station, Washington, D.C., and got them out on some fast-moving boats and everything on the Potomac River and got them to be able to witness, you know, the Coast Guard doing their mission out there and everything. And they were so appreciative of that, that they could get out and they could witness what the troops were doing. And you know what I loved about that day, Josh? is that whole mission of four boats out there, the person in charge of that mission was a Coast Guard E-5. Oh, wow. That so is amazing. It, yeah, it, it was just phenomenal. <clears throat> so that allowed me to continue to tell these WWE superstars, what you're seeing right now is a reflection of an all-volunteer military and a professional non-commissioned officer education system where now we have built this trust and we can empower. And you're looking at, a young E-5 that is leading a four-boat mission out here on the Potomac. And this isn't just show today. This is routinely what they do. And that is what is our greatest competitive advantage across our force is our trained and trusted and empowered non-commissioned officer corps. 100%. That, that is amazing. And I I know that E-5 will, will never forget that, that he, you know, absolutely kicked ass and showed the WWE the time of their life, you know, out on those boats. That is, that is too cool. Yeah. Well, you know, he had Roman Reigns and he had Brock Lesnar on there and everything. No. Yeah. (laughs) That's like a different level of stress, actually having like celebrities (laughs) with you. (laughs) Um, Okay. Question number two. And I know that was a long question. Number one, but I, I had the video ready and I, and I wanted to to have you revit, you know, relive that a little bit. Yeah. Uh, So question two is about spouses. You've been married yeah. to Sandra for 39 years, you know, as, as, as of the writing of the book. Yep. 39 years. I'm 38. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a master sergeant in the Air Force, and you've been married longer than my entire life. <laughs> Which Thanks for a, telling me how old I am, brother. <laughs> I'm just saying that's, a, that's incredible. I mean, yeah. that's, that's, that's no easy feat. You know, I was raised with my parents were having divorces left and right. And that's a tough life. Uh, and they were in the military too. Um, and those, those trials are tough on the family. Um, and so my question to you is, you know, what are some of the attributes Sandra had that made her special and that made you and your family special as a spouse that, that kept encouraging you? Like what kind of attributes, you know, did she have that really stood out? So, you know, she's, you know, when I talk in the book, you know, she came from a first generation Mexican-American family. Her father was from Chihuahua, Mexico. 
and her mom and dad had 19 kids. So she grew up in a house, you know, in poverty. <clears throat> and uh, they had to learn in a hurry that every day was about survival, you know. And so they had to do the things necessary as a family. So she grew up um, with someone that was uh, very stoic because I think of how she grew up as a child. So when she, when her and I got married and she got introduced to military life, it wasn't a shock to her, you know, that, you know, as a young E3 family living overseas in Germany in 1984, we didn't have a lot of money. And, you know, we lived on some hard times and everything, but she made the best of everything we did. So I think that level of, of stoicism that she had from her childhood growing up and, and, you know, understanding how to make the most um, with what you have, <clears throat> that went a long way. And I talked in the book about my first combat tour in Panama, you know, when, you know, the no notice combat jump into Panama and I came back. And all of the other spouses in the company just kept talking about how Sandra was the calming factor amongst the other spouses. I mean, you're in a peacetime military, you get ready for a half day schedule, and all of a sudden your spouse is parachuting into combat and everything. And so I think that um, the being, being the, the stoic that she was was a key attribute. But the other thing is her loyalty, you know, and she understands that she understood as a military spouse that I was going to be gone a lot. That in order for me to be able to best pro provide for the family, that I needed to be the best soldier I could be. And so, and I talk about it in the book, you know, about setting goals and, hey, I want to go and do this and I want to go and do that and, and everything. And she was always supportive in all of that. Don't get me wrong. Not everything, you know, as I said in the book, not everything was beer and Skittles, you know, right. about our marriage and everything. But, you know, I think uh, between the both of us, you know, just leaning on each other during the bad times and, you know, celebrating each other during the good times. Um, but she was just someone that it took a lot to get Sandra arrived. And I think it was because of how she grew up as a child and and the responsibilities. Think of this, you know, when you have 18 kids or, or 19 kids in a house and you're living, you know, a Spartan life, they would buy 50 pound bags of flour. And when they would, you know, to make the tortillas and everything. And when the bag would get empty, her mom would make underwear for the kids out of the, the 50 pound bag. Oh, so wow. That kind of, when you live up like, when you grow up like that, you learn to appreciate the small things and when something goes over the top, you know, you, uh, you know, you, you learn to keep it in perspective because you've, you've been on bad times. I remember in 84 in Germany, we lived off post. I kind of talked about it in the book. We didn't have American television. We had American radio. Yeah, you had the radio and you lived like really far from base. You had to walk there yeah. sometimes. You had to yeah. take expensive taxis or buses. Yeah. And Sandra, I came home one day and we had this little bookshelf. I mean, it was a tiny little bookshelf on the wall that was part of the German apartment. And she had put some books and knickknacks up there. And she was just so happy. And she said, I want to take pictures of this, you know, so we can remember this, you know, and everything. And it was just this little simple bookshelf. But I thought, man, this is just phenomenal that something like this 
gets her fired up. And then when she started getting involved with the family readiness uh, groups and all that stuff, it was just phenomenal. So I think the best attributes out of her was she was going to support me in everything I did, uh, her loyalty, but being stoic. And then especially when the combat started and then the hard fighting from when Iraqi freedom started and enduring freedom, just that stoicism from her. And I even write about it in the book where we had that conversation after Desert Storm. And she said, look, I couldn't control whether you lived or died. I had to focus on what I could control. And that was making sure that our sons had the same kind of, uh, you know, deliberate activity every day so that they could continue to excel and everything. And I was like, wow, that made a huge impact on me that, you know, she understood that, you know, she couldn't sit around and be glued to the TV waiting to see if or waiting for those sedans to pull up in front of the house that I talked about in the book. She had to focus on what she could control. And that was the boys and their everyday life and making sure they had the structure and everything to continue to grow and develop. Yeah, she's she's incredible. I mean, you, you talk about her a lot in the book. And now that you've explained like kind of a lot of like the way she was raised, I mean, she's she has a lot of grit just from the day you met her. Yeah. You know Absolutely. what I mean? <laughs> Which is just amazing. Uh, and there's a picture in the book where you're being sworn in as the SEAC. And I want to say she's like holding the Bible. Yeah. Right. And she just looks so proud. I wanted to find the video of that. I couldn't find any video. But looking at the picture, she just she got to be a part of that that journey, too. How did she feel about that night when she held that Bible that you swore in on? So, you know, it was interesting because um Everything was moving so fast. And I talked about it in the book, you know, 18 November, 2015, I get the call <clears throat> from General Dunford that he selected me. And two weeks later, I'm in Washington, D.C., you know, and, and uh, um, you know, and do the ceremony and everything and, and getting sworn in. So I think we were kind of numb at the time, but we were so proud of where we were at and, and as a family. And uh, she just, uh, you know, she was just taking it all in, you know, and ready for this next adventure. Um, I think the, you know, the emotion really came out and I kind of talked about it right after General Dunford called me. I was in Japan and she was in Korea. And so we weren't even together when I got the news that I was a, I had been selected as a SEAC, but we were on a FaceTime call and we were both pretty emotional that we had reached the pinnacle of the enlisted ranks and that we had done it together and we had made our way through, <laughs> excuse me, the good times and the bad and everything. And, and here we were. And then when the process started, it was moving so fast that we didn't have time to stop and say, wow. But I think uh, we knew what was going to happen there, that General Dunford was going to swear us in and everything. But I think at that time, it, we were just so proud of where we were at. But we knew that we had four years that we had to make an impact coming up, not just as the SEAC, but as a family on the joint force. So yeah, it was a proud moment that day. And, uh, and then afterwards, you know, after the ceremony, we had the reception and there were thousands of people coming through the receiving line and everything. And by then, you know, we're just kind of like, wow. And then the next day- You became military royalty. Yeah, and then the next day I went to the <laughs> Army Navy game and then we had to go back to Korea to finish out processing. So I talk about in the book in the space of two weeks, 
we crossed that international date line three times. And so it was, uh, we were, and then the, the day we got back, when we finally got back to DC after driving from Seattle all the way to DC, the next day we were the grand marshals at the military bowl. And so, and then we had a few days after that to relax, <laughs> but right after the new year, the chairman and I were off going overseas. And so and that is a hell of a pace that y'all had to maintain. Yeah. But that picture that you talked about, that picture sits in our family room. You know, we have a big blown up picture of it. And uh, it was just a proud moment, you know, uh, of our career. And I tell people all the time, when you go into Washington, D.C., as the SEAC or the chief master sergeant of the Air Force or, or the president of the United States, you get sworn in, you know, because of the level of your position. And so um, having her standing there holding that Bible and General Dunford swearing me in, it was just a culmination of hard work and, you know, perseverance as a military family as well. Yeah, I mean, just think of your roots and where you came from and to, to think that you'd be making decisions that impact the whole planet. Yeah. I mean, really, that's what you you achieved. Yeah, yeah. Um, which is just mind-boggling. Uh, so incredible that I, I love that she was a part of it, though, because it is a family commitment and, and she was there, you know, with every step of your journey. So. I thought that was so cool that, you know, she was able to participate in, in that photo. I, I can envision you have that photo. And then on the other wall, you have the photo of that bookshelf, if you could find it. Right. <laughs> yeah, we'll have to look for that. It's one. like, this is where we started. This is where we ended up. Yeah. Yeah. You know, well, that's, I just, uh, you know, yeah. And I think that's what's important for anybody in life is if you, if you never forget where you came from, then, uh, <clears throat> then you won't, uh, if you don't forget where you came from, then you will always keep in perspective the accomplishments that you have and you will be grateful for everything that's come your way. Like post-military life, we have a lot of good things going on, not just the book, but other things. And it's because of, uh, you know, we've kept things in perspective. We try to remain humble with everything and good things have just come our way. So we are eternally grateful uh, for everything that's happened to us, both individually and as a family. Absolutely. All right. Third question. Yes. Biggest lesson learned from General Dunford? Um, oh, geez, there's so many. <laughs> when you talk. Is, it, is that like a super rare thing to get to know someone like him? Like, did I mean, you were a very experienced person by the time you met him. But was it still like mind blowing to be around someone like that with that much? you know? Well, I think initially, you know, um, and I talked about when you get to the Pentagon like that and you become the SEAC, you know, you've been kind of playing division one college football, you know, at the four-star level in the, you know, like in Korea and where I was at before. And now you're in the NFL in the Pentagon and the speed of the game is much faster. And then with the responsibilities that the chairman and the secretary of defense have, they don't have a lot of time <laughs> to sit around and chew the fat, you know, and um, don't get me wrong, whenever General Dunford needed to vent, he would walk down to my office and we'd sit down and talk. But we built a relationship and we had so much in common in terms of, you know, having men and women prepared uh, to fight and win on any given day and trying to be as humble as possible in the jobs we were in. 
But what I learned from Dunford, when you talk about a blueprint for what a chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff should look, act, and how to perform, Joe Dunford is the consummate example for that. Very, you know, he, he stayed out of the limelight. He made sure that on both sides of the aisle with Congress, um, that he was respectful and, and gave everybody time. He never took positions politically. <clears throat> and, you know, his leadership style didn't change from President Obama to President Trump. He was still the same Joe Dunford, the same chairman and everything. And he was just, I mean, just an awesome guy to be around. And I talk about the book. The lesson I learned about Dunford was that regardless of how high you get up or whatever, remember the basics, remember the fundamentals, remember what we expect. He and I used to talk about this. We expect every soldier, sailor, airman, Marine, Coast Guardsman and Guardian to go out and do the fundamental things that they have to do to be successful, whether that's PT, technical training, tactical, you know, operations or whatever. So every day we have to continue to be that example. And so we were constantly doing PT together. I mean, I remember we went on a flight from DC where it was 20 degrees. We landed in Honolulu and it was 90 degrees. And we got out and did a 12 mile run together that morning, you oh, know, wow. and, and uh, because it was about leading by example. And I mentioned in the book where, you know, he, he had a weekend full of meetings with President Obama <laughs> preparing for it. And Monday, that Monday, he had meetings all day at the White House with the president and the National Security Council. And I'm driving home from the Pentagon at six o'clock in the evening and it's 25 degrees out in February. And I see this big, tall, strapping guy running down the hill by past Whipple Field on Fort Myer, and it's General Dunford out getting his PT in. Oh, my God. I mean, the guy just – so um, – and the other thing I loved about him, you know, sometimes senior officers, sometimes senior NCOs too, they can be so caught up with everything that's going on with them that when they're moving down a hallway in the Pentagon or somewhere that they got a thousand things on their mind, and somebody may – say good morning to him or something, and they just miss it, you know. Dunford, I don't care if he was supposed to be at a meeting at nine o'clock, then he better start walking at 830 because he's going to stop and talk to everybody from the lowest airman or Lance Corporal or whatever <clears throat> to the highest general or admiral. He's going to talk to him. And so that's what I loved about him. He was such a people person. Um, <clears throat> but, you know, what I loved about the guy and what I learned most from him is, you know, if you if you're doing what you're expected to do in your job, you don't need your boss coming back and giving you accolades. And Dunford, and I, I mentioned this in the book, he told me, hey, look, don't expect me to come down and tell you, hey, Siak, you're doing a great job and everything. He said, I'll know from what the troops are telling me about how you're doing. And I love that, you know, because at this level... <laughs> When you're the SEAC and then when you're the chairman, selfless service is your watchword. You're serving the force. You're not there to serve yourself. And so um, when he made that statement to me, I said, man, that is such a great statement because, you know, never once did he come down and say, hey, look, you know, great job or anything. And I didn't want him to, you know, I wanted to, what were the troops telling him, you know, and, and everything. And so that's what I learned the most about that guy was how to be that leader of presence 
and how to be humble. And he was all of that. No, I love that. That's, that's <laughs> he sounds like an he sounds like an amazing guy. Uh, is he someone that you're still able to stay in touch with to this day? Absolutely. Yeah. I, you know, we don't stay in touch as we're both very busy, but I will tell you, here's the other thing. Think of all the relationships between a four-star general or admiral and a senior enlisted leader. And I called, I texted him and I said, chairman, I'm writing my memoir and uh, I'd like to send you the manuscript. And if you wouldn't mind, would you, would you please consider writing the foreword? He wrote me back and said, I got it. I'm done. It's, it's done. Yeah. I did, all I had to do was ask, you know? Oh my God. And he was in. And then I, then I even, Josh, I even had to do this because we had a deadline to get the book out on 27 February. And this was like the, you know, when I got the transcript to him, it was like 13 February. And I said, chairman, I'm, I'm putting a, you know, unrealistic timeline on, but can you get this back to me uh, by the 19th of February, the 18th of February, his foreword was back to me. I mean, he was that kind of guy in that he wrote the foreword for the book. And then, you know, other guys like General Scaparotti, former Supreme Allied Command of Europe, that he wrote a testimonial on all the folks that did it for me. You know, I was just so appreciative and it meant, meant the world to me that they did that. No, that's, that is, that's amazing. Thank you so much for sharing all that. I know that was a, a lengthy three questions, but I mean, I, I, I tried to make them really good, you know, after reading this. Um, yeah. And so I think we hit the mark there. So I wanted to, to read a couple passages from your book here. Okay. Um, so we're going to start with page 27. <clears throat> so it says, my journey for mentors was anew. In Germany, it was First Sergeant Charles DeRosa, a Korean and Vietnam War veteran and a very hardened, abrasive man, but one that was very professional. And so, you know, what, what's unique about your story that like jumped out right away was that you worked with Vietnam vets. Yeah. No one else can say that at this point in time. We don't know what that's like. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I was hoping you could kind of let me know, like, what was that like? What were those those people like? So I think what I was seeing back then, uh, our military then, <clears throat> although we were still embryonic in the development of our non-commissioned officer education system and our all-volunteer force, um, I think we were kind of the same way <clears throat> we are post-Afghanistan. Um, you have a lot of non-commissioned officers and petty officers, but leaders that have been hardened through combat multiple combat tours in Iraq and Afghanistan. And now we're in this kind of gray area where it's large, uh, you know, great power competition. Um, and uh, how do we build competitive advantages and everything? So I, my, the Vietnam era NCOs that I were around, like DeRosa specifically, that guy came in every day. His uniform was starched. His boots were spit shine. But, you know, I remember out in the field one day and I got out of my vehicle and I didn't have my helmet on. And, uh, you know, he just yelled across the and he said, get your helmet on. If I catch you without your helmet on again, I'm going to put you on guard duty. And he said, so, you know, why wearing your equipment is important. And I thought about that. Here I was just a young E3. And I'm like, why did he say that like that? And then as. I was talking to one of my NCOs. He said, hey, when you're on guard duty, you're in full combat gear. You're on alert. 
and everything. So I, I, I kind of made the connection to what he was saying, you know, mm-hmm. and every time there was a healthy fear associated with this guy. And, and I could just tell, you know, because of his extensive combat experience that he had seen uh, plenty of the worst days of his life, you know, and he had seen the worst of combat. And I didn't take offense on how he approached me when I was wrong, you know, and uh, I just, this was, I said, this is a guy much like I talk about my drill sergeant, Sergeant First Class Ron Batiste, who was another Vietnam veteran. Um, I just said, these are men that I do not want to have upset at me because these men have seen, you know, the gates of hell and these men are confident in how they do business and everything. And they're not afraid to snatch a knot in my butt. And I never, I just said, Hey, look, I'm going to, I'm going to be the best that I could be until one day DeRosa called me into his office. And when he called me into my office, into his office, I was like, why do I need to go see the first sergeant? How did I screw up? You know, and I didn't do anything wrong. And he brings me in there and he says, all right, Troxel, you're going to the soldier of the month board. I was like, Roger that first sergeant. And I said, why are you selecting me? He says, well, I think you're a good troop. And when he told me that, Josh, I was like, all this time, this guy has been, you know, I mean, I mean, I am walking a, a, a fine line every time First Sergeant DeRosa would walk by. And I thought to myself, this guy was looking at me from the first time he chewed my butt about not having my helmet on. And I could tell why it was because he cared. It was, be, it was it, the, the butt chewings were out of love. It wasn't out of hate. And it wasn't, you know, to just treat me like a second class citizen. He had seen the worst of what can happen in combat in Korea and Vietnam. And he wanted me and every other soldier that he was responsible for to be best prepared to face those conditions, physically, mentally, emotionally, technically, and tactically, so that we could be successful and we could fight and win. And that's what I learned from that man. And I, and I always, to that point, I said, I, I, don't, I don't care how much this guy chews my butt for being screwed up. I'm going to make sure that I'm doing the things necessary because I want this guy to, again, have the confidence in me that he would allow me to represent the organization. And he was that kind of leader. And all of the Vietnam era leaders back then hadn't, they had, had seen hard combat. I mean, we had well over 50,000 uh, troops that were killed in action in Vietnam and everything. And although they may not have been the best educated non-commissioned officers, because again, our NCO education system was still in its uh, infancy, they had been hardened by this combat. And their focus on everything was based around being ready to fight. And uh, uh that's what I see now from a lot of senior NCOs now that have seen the worst of what combat have to offer, including myself, is that the, the young men and women that are serving in uniform today, even the seniors like you and everybody else, it's based out of love that I want you to be the best that you can be. So on the worst day that you can deal with that and not just survive it, but you can thrive in it and, and, and come out as a winner and come out as a champion. And that's what I think those Vietnam era NCOs did for me is that they taught me that, you know, hey, you can do all these soldier of the month things and all this other stuff, 
But in the end, it's about winning our nation's wars. And that's what they were focused on. Very patriotic warriors that were proud of their service, even though, you know, they didn't get the welcome home that you and I got from our deployments. But they were proud of their service. They were proud to wear the uniform and proud that they had been able to represent the United States uh, in combat. And I got to say, that's amazing that they went to Vietnam and the Korean War and then still served like stateside. Like, I I just never thought of that. I thought, you know, they would go to war. It was so traumatic. They'd probably stop serving. But that's not the case. There's still a bunch of them that still were serving even after all that chaos. And wow. Talk about giving back. Look at this. DeRosa was at the end of his career. DeRosa was an E8, but he had been in for 31 years. So he he joined as a private. <clears throat> it went right after his uh, boot camp and everything, and went straight to Korea, and served as a young private in the Second Infantry Division. And then, you know, years later, as an NCO, he did two tours in Vietnam. So, I mean, this guy had you know this is all he knew from the minute that he strapped on a uniform as an E one was fighting in wars, and so. Here he is in the twilight of his career, and he took so much pride in making sure, even though we were a peacetime military, the Cold War was going on and everything, but he was going to make sure that we were best prepared if that wall came down or all of a sudden, now we were fighting at the time, East Germany and Russia or the Soviet Union. So that's the kind of leader that he was. Yeah, that's that's incredible. He's an incredible person. All those Vietnam vets were that you talk about. That's amazing. I'm so glad I asked you about that because I was I was really curious about that. Okay, let's see. So let's go to. I kind of want to to pause for a minute and talk about like resiliency and getting through some really tough times. So on, on at one point in time, there was a paratrooper accident, mm-hmm. right? That was kind of the first time where like you know, people were asking you questions and it was a very uncomfortable and traumatic and really sad situation. Right. And, but it wasn't the last and you even end it with that. Like that was real traumatic. And it, and then it wasn't the last situation I went through Yeah, because then it, you know, turned, I didn't even know about this until I I read your book, but then to, to turn around and, um, you know, someone tries to call you out when you're the SEAC. And if you wouldn't mind, I want to read a part of that. Yeah, please. Because do. that I was like, oh my God. Like if if I it just sounded terrifying. You know, the the lack, like, oh, this something bad's happening. Oh, what is it? Oh, we can't tell you. You know, it's just like worst case yeah. scenario. So let's see. That's on 227. So let me go to that. Okay. So it starts with you are suspended pending investigation on September 26, 2018. I was well into my 33rd month serving as the SEAC. It started out like any other day in that position. I was home preparing and packing to get on a plane trip with the chairman that afternoon to Europe. While I was packing my suitcase, I received a phone call from an Air Force colonel who was a lawyer on the joint staff. He told me I needed to come to the Pentagon immediately and see the vice director of the joint staff, which was an Air Force two-star. I replied, well, I'm packing and getting ready to head to Andrews Air Force Base to get on the C-40 aircraft with the chairman. And he said, well, I understand that, but you've got to come in and see the vice director. I threw my suitcase in my car and I drove up to the Pentagon. When I walked into the vice director's office, he was sitting at his conference table 
the lawyer I spoke to on the phone was in there in the Joint Staff Public Affairs Officer. Another Air Force colonel was there as well, but nobody else. I thought, okay, this can't be good. <laughs> and, and, uh, and then it says, uh, I immediately inquired. Okay, so they said that there's going to be an investigation. I immediately inquired, an investigation into what? He replied, I can't tell you. I thought to myself, WTF, that's kind of weird. The payo then informed me that they were going to release a statement to the media that I was suspended. I didn't even know what I was under suspension for, but we were going to tell the whole world that I'm suspended. I was not a happy camper with that. And then the other part that really stood out to me was, you know, having that set in, right? Like here's a guy who has poured his heart and soul into his career. Like, there's your wife, your family, and then there's your service. You know what I mean? Like, this is who you are. And so this is this is terrifying. I, I can only imagine. So it says, uh, the vice director then ordered that I could not go into my office, nor could I interact with any of my current or former staff members. He then directed me to go home and take a four-day pass and then come back and see him, and they will find a desk for me to occupy through the investigation. On the short drive home, frankly, I was numb at that point. I think because of the torrid pace my team and I had been on in terms of getting after my duties as the SEAC, my mind was going in a thousand directions. I could not process what I had just or what had just happened. And for the first time in my career, I was suspended from my duties. When I got home and informed Sandra that I had been suspended pending an investigation, she asked, oh my goodness, what for? And I replied, I have no idea. They didn't tell me. Yeah. So like, I, I felt terrible reading that because like, I've been in situations where I've like, you know, I've, I did something inadvertently or whatever. And that is always like, and then you don't know what's going on. You just know your boss is upset. I mean, that, that just makes the pit, you know, your stomach drop, but as the SEAC and after your whole career, pouring your heart and soul into this, yeah. You were you were and you were crushing it as a SEAC at that point. Like y'all were hitting your stride, your team was firing on all cylinders, you were crushing it. Yeah. So this is like the worst case scenario, right? Hey, you're not doing your job anymore until we figure this out. And you don't even know what that is. Oh, and by the way, we're gonna tell the whole world you're suspended. Yeah. How how so, does one handle that? Well, I mean, obviously I was very upset uh, because you know. It, my opinion uh, at the time was we're going to cover our bases by suspending you and making sure we do this deliberate process. Um, and then we're going to make sure we cover our bases by letting the world know that you're suspended. And the reason I think they did that was because of what you were talking about, that I was so visual with the force. You know, it was only months earlier that I had did the E-Tool Nation and called out ISIS and everything. And you know, I was receiving positive messages all over the world from our troops, excuse me, our allies and partners. And I even mentioned in the book that when I came back after the USO tour and, you know, the whole eTool thing went viral, that the, the all of a sudden I sensed the atmosphere in the Pentagon wasn't the same. You know, I mentioned about this, uh, you know, senior flag officer that walked into my office and, and I mean, and this is no joke, said, 
enlisted people are meant to be seen and not heard. And I thought to myself, in another life, this guy probably would have been folded up like a chair, you know. <laughs> but, you know, and I talk in the book about, you know, hey, if you got a problem with it, go talk to the chairman and SecDef because they're the ones that tell me to keep saying it, you know. Mm. <laughs> but this is what, I, you know, the thing that really kills me about our military, Josh, and it is prevalent today, is professional jealousy. And a certain person that filed this complaint against me, who was a mediocre performer, and I had steadily been getting into their butt about upping their game because this person was a senior, senior non-commissioned officer. And my, my more junior non-commissioned officers on the staff were running circles around him. And, uh, you so know, you're trying I'm, to mentor someone, help this person out. And instead of and, saying, cool, got it, they said, I'm going to come after this guy. Yeah, in the end, they weaponized. In the end, did I make mistakes? Yeah, and I admit it in the book, you know. I mean, but, you know, the things that I was suspended six months for, obviously the allegations is why I was suspended. But the hostile, toxic leadership went away. The use of torturous language went away. The improper travel for me and my wife went away. Um, and, uh, you know, the, you know, unauthorized gifts, all that stuff went away. And in the end, you know, two things, um, you know, I Im Im implied endorsement to a non-federal entity by shooting a video of these gym boxes that we have all over our camps, posts, and stations. And the video was telling the troops, get into these gym boxes there's workout equipment and everything in them. But because they had this big TRX sticker on it, I was an implied endorse. It was an implied endorsement. And you know what's ironic about that? You know, not to get off the point, you walk into any Athe's exchange right now, the T the Army is endorsing TRX material now. So <laughs> I mean, but anyways, and then you know, you've probably been through this too. You know, a staff member walks in and says, Hey, I'm heading down to the store you want anything and i give them money and say hey yeah get me a soda and then get whichever you want and get the staff everything and then keep the change you know Imp Im improperly use of my staff how many how many of your subordinates have you bought food for right? so it's it's basically you you have they're they're trying to manipulate the situation right you, you have good intentions you're doing a normal human thing that we've all done and then trying to twist that and to make you sound like a bad person because of it which is just infuriating you know when people yeah. try to do that and here's a here's a key thing and i didn't put this in the book but you know afterwards you know i got starting first class colton smith back you know my ufc fighter and everything and he became my xo for a few months until i got a new xo in and he brought this book into me, this calendar book. He said, hey, Siak, you got to check this out. So it was this E9's calendar book that he had left in the office in there. And every trip that I had been on or every meeting we had been in, he had made little uh, comments in there. Um, made, the, made the troops do PT with him in the morning. Used the F word in my presence three times and stuff like this. And I thought to myself, so... <clears throat> The point in all of this is when you have someone that is a 60 percenter, you know, a minimal standard kind of person, but then they expect to get uh, rewarded for minimal performance. Um, and all of a sudden you call them out on that. 
they're going to weaponize some things to try and do personal and professional harm. And that they tried to, that this person, and I'm not saying this person operated alone, um, but they, they might've had some influence from some others. And it might've been some high ranking individuals too. Um, but, you know, to come after my wife too, to say that Sandra did illegal travel. And that allegation was dismissed right off the bat because the, the same individual that filed the complaint was the individual that processed the travel orders, you know? So, um, so in the end, this individual, it was all done to try and cause personal and professional harm to me and to get me to just get me out of the way so that this person can continue to operate at their mediocre level and try to receive accolades for minimal performance. But the key point through all of this, um, and I talk about it in the book, is that there are leaders out there that say they care. Now, don't get me wrong. I, I talk about this in the book. The next day, General Dunford texted me, said, hey, we'll figure all this out. Secretary Mattis texted me, said, we'll figure all this out. Don't worry, we'll get to the bottom of this. We just got to let the process go and everything. And there were others. General Goldfein came to my house and had a beer with me. You know, General Todd Walters, another Air Force officer who was, uh, you know, the Supreme Allied Commander Europe at the time, sent me an email and everything. And, and so I had all these people that were, you know, really behind me and everything. But there were people, key leaders on the staff that were tone deaf. So when you when you tell someone, especially in that position, you're suspended, but I can't tell you what you're under investigation for. And then you say, we're going to put out a press release saying that you're you're suspended. I mean, are you really caring about the individual that is under investigation? And I'm not trying to make myself out to be a victim here, Josh, but I mean, think of, you know, this this probably happens all the time across the joint force where we are so worried about making sure that we have the process right, that we free, we become tone deaf to what harm this may be causing to the individual that is under investigation, you know, or the, the person that is uh, levered, you know, uh, giving out the allegations and everything. I think we are so focused on the process that we forget about that it is the humans involved in it, you know, yeah, so, it's like the empathy just flies out the window when the process comes in. It's like suddenly it's very robotic when yeah. really you're a person who dedicated your whole life to this. Yeah. And, you know, I didn't realize how, you know, prevalent this kind of stuff was until it happened to me. And next thing you know, um, you know, I'm in a closet and there's Army three stars, Air Force three stars that are suspended pending investigations the same thing. And I mentioned in the book, General Jim Slife came down and, and pulled me out of that closet that I was staying in and took me upstairs to the Air Force mess. And he told me about when he was in that, you know, stuck wow. in a cubicle like me and everything. And all of that meant the world to me, you know. But in the end, the stuff that the guy, you know, like the I talk about the football jersey in the book, that, that guy clearly staged that to try and make something stick on me. So this was something that he had conjured up and the investigator dismissed it, you know, on me, but there was no repercussions on the person that staged trying to, you know, cause 
you know, personal trying to bait you. <clears throat> yeah. So trying it to... sounds like he was so focused on, on, on removing you. Like what yeah. a debt, what a huge detriment to the team when the person on your team isn't even fighting the, the real enemy. And you know, here's the worst part, Josh, the guy filed the complaint anonymously and he didn't tell anybody else. Um, so nobody else on the staff knew that this guy was, you know, in, you know, it didn't take us very long to figure out who, who it was and everything, you know, but, uh, you know, there was a moment and I, I, I didn't write about it in the book, but I walked into, I mean, every time I would walk down the hallway at the Pentagon, I would see one of my teammates or something. It took everything I had not to say, Hey, you know, and stop and talk to them. And it was the same for them too. You know, we had to walk by like, we didn't even know each other. And it was so impersonal. It was so frustrating. And ostracized. You know? You're getting punished. And it's like a punishment before they even figure out what happened. You know? And I think at a certain point, and I even talked about this in the book, people were hoping I didn't come back. You know? And, but I go back to General Dunford. He was not going to be swayed by political pressure. He was not going to be swayed <coughs> by the army trying to return me to service. He said, this is my sergeant major, my SEAC, and I will be the one that determines what the outcome of this is going to be. And in the end, you know, he, he gave me like an Uber counseling statement, uh, which he destroyed when, you know, he left and he put me back to work. And all of a sudden, when I got reinstated, those same people that were looking to try and, yeah, he's going to be gone, we're and everything all of a sudden they were coming around and wanting to be my buddies again and everything and i'm talking general and flag officers i'm talking senior enlisted and everything again uh you know i forgive but i didn't forget you know and it was just you know the most trying time i had in my career because as you said we were hitting on all cylinders when this happened and because of a disgruntled mediocre performer it almost disrupted the entire SEAC position and were mm -hmm. it not for somebody like uh, General Dunford, but more importantly, uh, General Milley that came behind him that said, no, I'm going to keep the SEAC position going. You know, this could have been something to say, well, we don't need this position anymore. Holy, so there's a lot at stake with this one complaint. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah. How much power that one lie had. Yeah. Isn't that wild? And in the end, like I said in the book, I I committed some mistakes in terms of use of my staff and then, you know, implied endorsement of a non-federal entity, General Dunford <clears throat> counseled me on it and everything, and he put me back to work. But the point in all of this, if that was all in six months of work, and I talk about in the book where the guy came back, uh, the investigator about the football jersey, and then a week later, he's trolling my social media, and he finds this other video of me on a hike with uh, Chef Robert Irvine with a bunch of wounded warriors in Scotland and Irvine handed out a, a protein bar to everybody participating. And I say in the video, this guy gave us a protein bar. We're ready to get after. And all of a sudden now they want to say, well, Hey, you implied endorsement, this protein bar, because you needed it to complete this hike. I said, dude, I'm getting ready to do 54 miles in 24 hours. I need like a truckload of protein bars. Okay. Plus, it wasn't just for me. Everybody got one, you know. So <clears throat> I think, and again, I don't want to 
judge the system of the inspector general office, but this one inspector, I mean, even after I did my interview, which I'm sure you know, once you once the accused gets interviewed, you're basically done. And in the first six weeks, my interview was over. But this guy came back a week later about the football jersey. And then a week later, it was about this video and everything. So I still had four and a half months of sitting around and waiting for adjudication. And I think it was because they were still trying to look for anything they could pin on me that would be a big deal in front of not only the chairman and the SECDEF, but the media as well. And in the end, I'm so thankful that General Dunford wasn't swayed by political pressure, media pressure, and certainly by any by the United States Army trying to say, well, we'll just return him to service and everything. He's like, no, this guy works for me. So when I talk about not being tone deaf and understanding that this is all about the most precious treasure we have as the humans in this enterprise, Dunford hadn't forgotten about that. And that was probably the greatest moment I had with that man, with all the good stuff that we had done together, how he supported me through that whole effort. And in the end, he held me accountable, but he put me back to work. Uh, it was just phenomenal. Wow. Well, that's a, that's a good leader to have in your corner right there. That's, that's wow. That's amazing. Um, when, when you got back to duty, like how, how did you feel? Were you thankful? Were you refreshed? Were you, did you lose yeah. faith in some things? Like how, what, where was your head at when you were cleared and you were back in that chair? So again, you know, the minute I got reinstated and the press release got put out, I was reinstated. The press release then went viral that I was back. And there was a Marine captain that was on uh, General Dunford's staff, Kimberly Sontag. She's still a friend today. And she wrote on her social media post, she said, relax, America, he's back. And that little message that she sent went viral as well. But as I walked down the hallway, I sensed now the dyna- the, the atmosphere was changing again. Oh, shit, he's back. Okay, you know, now we got to deal with this guy. But you know what they had done, Josh? They returned every one of my staff members to service. What? So when I got back, the, the, the only person down there when I got back was the person that filed a complaint against me. And I told, excuse me, General Dunford, I said, I'm not going to work with that guy down there. And he said, no, that guy is going to be gone tomorrow. So the next guy, day, the guy was gone. It was just me. Your whole team was returned back to their services. Yeah. Wow. So I, went, I went in and told General Dunford, I said, I can't do this job by myself. And so Colton Smith, who was one of my operations NCOs, he was working uh, in the basement of the joint staff, you know, doing travel vouchers. I said, I want that guy back. And then I got assistance from the vice director's office uh, with some other folks. I got a great Marine gunnery sergeant in uh, named Diana Gutierrez. Um, I got a Navy senior chief, Clint Sprayberry. And then ultimately I got my XO uh, Air Force Chief Master Sergeant Jeanette Masters and everything. So I built the team back up. But Josh, they had shut this thing down like I wasn't coming back. And oh, they really underestimated General Dunford. And uh, and so when I and came you, back, yeah, they thought because you, you could have went off the rails. You know what I mean? You could have yeah. made it worse. I mean, I, I've been in that situation. I'm going to be honest. I made it worse because yeah. I was so angry and paranoid that I started, you know, burning bridges in my own situation 
So you, you, you know, give yourself credit too for hanging in there and keeping it together. Yeah. And then two months later, we had my, you know, and I talk about the defense senior enlisted leader council conferences. And every time we did one of those, the social was general Dunford hosted at his house. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so two months after I got reinstated, I went to general Dunford and I said, Hey, sir, we got the D cell coming up again. Uh, you'd be willing to host the uh, social. He said, absolutely. He said, it's going to have to be an early night though, because the next day he had like a 4 a.m. flight to Afghanistan. But that's the kind of leader that guy was. So all 20, top 20 senior enlisted leaders and our spouses were at his house that night for a social. And then the next day at 4 a.m., he's on a, a flight to Afghanistan. That was, and, and this was two months after I had been suspended for six months. He never lost faith and confidence in me. I was his SEAC and he was going to support me in everything I did. And so that showed me wow. um, the level of leader that I got to serve with for 43 months. And he did, and, and you guys normally don't do that at the person's house, right? Like that's something that he introduced. That's what he was the first ever chairman to host an enlisted only event at the chairman of the joint chiefs of staff quarters. First one ever in the history of the 50 years of the wow. position. He was the first one to do it. And Josh, he did it every twice a year when we did these events. And here's the other thing he did. He would invite us, but then there would be other events at his quarters that I was always invited to. So, you know, I was just at Scott Air Force Base recently uh, speaking at a chief's recognition ceremony. And the Air Mobility Command commander, or excuse me, the uh, Transcom commander now, General Van Ovos. She was the vice director of the joint staff. And so when she knew I was coming on base, she said, hey, I, I want an office call with Troxel. And we got up there and we hugged and everything because not only had we been colleagues working together, but her and her husband were close to Sandra and I. And I remember we would have those events at General Dunford's house and General Ovo, Van Ovo's husband and I would be at the bar drinking beer together and everything, you know. So <laughs> what Dunford did was he one showed how much respect and empowerment he had for me as the SEAC, but more importantly, the Defense Senior Enlisted Leader Council, that every service senior enlisted leader and every combatant command senior enlisted leader, twice a year we're at his quarters spending time with him. That's amazing. I mean, what 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 an insane like investment in people that he made a priority and look how it paid off. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Look at the like loyalty and, and purpose, you know, we're just feeling this guy and, and you guys felt the love and it just empowered you so much more. Yeah. And wow. again, he, he doesn't like to stay in the spotlight. He's not a spotlight, right. guy. but you know, when I reached out to him and said, Hey, can you write the foreword for the book? He didn't hesitate. He said, I I'm in. No, so he, he, he steps in the spotlight when he has to, but he doesn't just do it just for attention. And I think that's right. what makes him special because that position has a lot of power and a lot of attention. And if he wanted to make it just about him, then he easily could have done that. And he didn't do that at all. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, like he, he would only step in that spotlight when it was his turn to do it. And he had to, to say something to everyone, but otherwise y'all were the show you and all the other, uh, you know, enlisted members that we had out there. He, he gave them the spotlight and the investment and that that's pretty incredible. I yeah. think y'all were an amazing team. Seriously. Yeah, it was awesome spending that time with them. 
Well, I I got through like three quarters of the book like thoroughly, and then I kind of had to speed read towards the end because I just got the book and I was like, I want and but I gotta tell you, I was hooked on it. Like oh, I'm gonna, yeah, like I was like, you know, like all these pages that I've marked here, you know, <laughs> that I wanted to like underline stuff or highlight. Yeah. Um, and and then you also signed it for me, which is just so incredibly nice of you. Uh, but the book is just absolutely filled with so many lessons as like a father, a husband, uh, you know, taking care of yourself with the PME hard and yeah. how you need to be prepared for that worst day of your life. Right. Like the, the worst day of your life is not the day where you need to get in shape, you know, mentally, physically, like you need to be ready for that day. Yeah. And, and that's, res- that's true resilience, honestly. Absolutely. Is the, yeah, yeah. Um, you being the CX, how you found, I figured that out, the eTool Nation and how you went viral and basically became famous overnight, whether you wanted to or not. It, it just kind of yeah. happened because, I mean, you're just so freaking hardcore about it that everyone just loved it. We needed that that warrior spirit back in us. And you brought that all the the wars that you've fought in was just astronomical. The PTSD that you've had to deal with, the suspension that we just talked about you know, at the pinnacle of your career. Yeah. Um, all of that, all of that's in here. Some beautiful moments are also in here. Like when um, those officers saluted you when you were oh, leaving. Yeah. And, it, and it brought you to tears. So, you you know, again, when you, you have officers that are superior in rank to you in position, but you have a great relationship with them. And, uh, you know, there's a level of respect there. And, you know, and, um, you know, Major Mike, Mark Aiken and Brian Sirota, they were my operations officer and my executive officer uh, during our my first tour in Iraq during uh, uh, Iraqi freedom. And I had been selected for an 06 level job and I was leaving and they not only escorted me to the departure airfield, but I'm getting on the plane and I'm sitting down and uh, I look out the window and there's Sirota and Aiken standing at attention. And as it, uh, the plane starts moving, they saluted, they're saluting the plane when I'm leaving. And I'm like, what the ultimate compliment you can get from superior officers. At, and it just shows that, you know, uh, when you do your job right and you build relationships and you care about people, even those that outrank you will show their respect. And there, there is no award, no ribbon or anything that can replace that, you know, because I was sick that I was leaving because I had built this organization with my commander and here we were, we were 10 months into combat. Um, but now I had to move on. Um, and seeing that just, uh, I couldn't, so you're, you were already emotional, right? Yeah. You already had a lot of things going through your mind. And, and then when you look out the window, you see those two officers saluting you. Yes. That, that just broke it for like, you were that just, was it. I was done, you know? Yeah. Um, you know, and here I am, I'm a command sergeant major and I got all these young troops around me and everything, you know, and I'm like, man, I got to keep up this persona of what a command sergeant major is. But so, you know, I just kind of, you know, tucked my head into my shirt and everything, you know, right. it was uh, it was a very emotional moment. Definitely. One I'll never forget. And I love that it meant that much to you. I think it says a lot about you, too, that it meant that much to you, you know. Yeah. But wow. Absolutely all the morale trips that you had with your team, uh, the, the moment where the jump doors opened for your first time coming out that aircraft for war, 
um, Sandra, <laughs> you telling Sandra, oh, I think I'll get out after like your first enlistment. And then she's like, the hell you are? No, you're not. <laughs> Put a foot yeah. in your ass. Well, so again, I go back to Sandra knew, you know, she knew that to be successful as a family, we had to have structure. We had to be doing something that I was good at and everything. <clears throat> and I still wasn't bought in that, you know, I could make this a career and everything. And, and then watching NFL football in Germany at midnight and two o'clock in the morning. And I'm like, hey, this is an American pastime. I'm supposed to be sitting grilling at noon on a Sunday and getting ready to watch the games and everything. And uh, and then when she came back to me and said, you know, you, you don't know how to do anything else. You're very good at this. And so uh, I made the decision then, you know, that um, – I'm going to stay in, but we're going to do what I want to do. And we're going to go to Fort Bragg, North Carolina, the center of the universe. And I'm going to be a paratrooper in the 82nd Airborne Division. And that's when really my career took off. Um, where I That was like your all-in moment, right? All-in, all-in moment right there. And then not only becoming a jump master and a ranger, but going to combat twice, you know, and just cause and desert storm. And that just kind of propelled me to keep trying to be the best that I could be and continuing to seek opportunities and, you know, increase responsibility and stuff like that. Sandra telling you to stay in change the world. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's kind of crazy to think of it that way, yeah. but it, that's, that's the reality of it. Had yeah. she said, Oh yeah, let's do that. Let's go home. Let's retire. You know, you never would have been the SEAC, but she said, hell no, you're staying in. This is what you're good at. And that decision change the world well yeah um well i say it all the time you know um i couldn't i would not be where i'm at today and i would never have had the career i had were it not for sandra and her being by my side kicking me in the butt like that when i needed it uh giving me the level of support and everything and and then just being there and i talk about in the book the uso tours and she didn't hesitate to go to iraq or afghanistan to do the things that the troop, getting on a helicopter in Nuristan and everything, or driving down Route Irish in Baghdad, you know, on a rhino bus. She didn't hesitate. She was there because she wanted to be there to support the troops with me. And so she's just the best thing that's ever happened to me. And we're going on 40 years this year. Wow. We're going to keep pounding. Definitely. That's amazing. Well, I, I just got to say thank you so much for everything that, you know, you've done for me for just your whole career. I mean, you're, you're just, to me, like you are that American hero, like wow. your, your core values, your, your purpose, just the amount that you care about people. And, and it, it's just, it's contagious. You yeah. know what I mean? Like it, 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 I, I feel it just talking to you. Like I'm fired up. I don't even know how I'm going to sleep tonight. You know, <laughs> but as we come to a close, you know, and, and we talked all about this book tonight. And by the way, I make it a point that if we ever talk, it's always about something different. I'll go back and I'll listen to the past episodes so that we definitely hit on different things. So we definitely hit on all different things tonight. Even looked at your WWE potential career and how you kind of merged, <laughs> you merged the two and you were on that stage. We even watched that video together. But as we come to a close here tonight, sir, I was wondering if you had any you know, final thoughts, final words for the audience that would be still listening at this point? So um, what I would say is our nation has been through a lot uh, in the last three years. Um, you know, 
starting with COVID and then the unrest of 20, you know, because of the murder of Flo George Floyd and everything. But what I want the men and women, the uniform to know, and I know a lot of your audience are on active duty and everything, and, and to our veterans too, that the one institution that has remained constant as a beacon for what the United States of America has the potential to be is the United States military in terms of building a diverse, inclusive <coughs> force that is based off of every American from every ethnicity, uh, gender, and everything like that. The men and women that are in uniform now and that have served our veterans have been a part of the greatest institution, not just in the United States, but in the entire world right now. And when you look at where we're at in the world, the United States military is the number one partner for global peace and security for other nations around the world. No other nation gets asked to do as much or to help as much with other nations as we do. And that's not going to change anytime soon. And it's because of the men and women that have rose their hand to serve in the United States military or have served. So to your audience that might be people out there that are looking to join the military, when you join the United States military, it's an adventure, and you will be a much better person leaving the military than when you entered. So I would just tell everybody to be grateful and thankful uh, for their service, uh, because you are part of the greatest military in the world. Hell yeah. Boom. Boom. <laughs> Boom. <laughs> I love that. And I love that you say boom so much because every time I read it, I can just hear you saying it. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I'm just like, boom, let's go. That. Let's do it. Yeah, let's do it. Anyways, All thanks, right. Josh. I appreciate yes, you sir. having me on. Keep pounding, brother. You are making a huge impact. And uh, I just admire everything you do. And I'm one of your number one fans, man. Wow. I've The SEAC the telling me, I never thought that I would ever hear that. I mean, that's just amazing. Uh, and I'm so thankful for you and, and you believing in me early on and spending time with me. And that changed everything. It changed not only how people perceive the podcast, but my own confidence. And if I could, you know, actually do it or not, you, you gave me that confidence. So thank you too, sir. It. Thank you All so right. much. All right. All right, everyone. Take care, that brother. was the hero's journey of John Wayne Troxel part two on the hero front podcast.